Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Amanda Machaka and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Concerns over humanitarian situation in the DRC. South Africa's former president heads AU election observer mission to Kenya. And Zimbabwe introduces a 60-year jail term for rapists. In economics news, AB InBev to spend $310 million in Africa and in sports news, Zambia beat South Africa and Kosafa under-17 championship. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Christian militiamen in the Central African Republic have attacked United Nations peacekeepers who are protecting a convoy of water trucks. The BBC's David Bamsford has the details. A United Nations spokesman said that one Moroccan peacekeeper has been killed and three others injured in the attack. It took place in the southern diamond town of Bangasu, where Christian anti-Balaka militia have been besieging a cathedral housing hundreds of displaced Muslims. They've been sheltering in the compound since a wave of ethnic killings in May. Most aid agencies say they're suspending operations in the town. Thousands have died in the Central African Republic since mainly Muslim Seleka rebels ousted President Francois Bozizé four years ago. The African Union has called on all stakeholders in Kenya's general election to ensure that its poll next month is free, fair and credible for the sake of the country's stability. Former South African President Tabumbeki, who's heading the AU election observer mission to Kenya, says a credible and peaceful poll on the 8th of August would set a precedent for the rest of Africa. Mbeki was speaking to the media in Nairobi after two days of marathon meetings with several key people in the electoral process. Everybody is communicating one message, uh, which is that... Uh, as Kenyans, uh, people want to have peaceful, free, fair, credible elections. We are all of us mindful uh, of what happened in 2007-2008 and, uh, and very, very keen that there must never ever be a repetition of that And uh, for the sake of Kenya. <coughs> but it's also for the sake of the continent because of the importance of the country, the Republic of Kenya in terms of the African context. This is an important African country. Malian and French troops have arrested a close associate of a preacher whose jihadist group has claimed dozens of attacks against Western and Malian targets. Mali Security Ministry says Messina Liberation Front, based in central Mali's Mopti region, led by cleric Amadou Koufa, was who has called upon followers to take up arms and rebuild the historic Fulani Empire of Messina. 
Kufa was arrested earlier this month in the Timbuktu region. The ministry kept his arrest a secret because of ongoing efforts to capture others in his network. Turkey's president Recep Tayyip Erdogan is on a key visit to the Gulf region aimed at defusing the standoff around Qatar. Erdogan arrived in Jeddah to meet the Saudi leadership before heading to Kuwait. He's also expected in Qatar for talks with Emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani since the crisis began. Erdogan has praised Qatar's behavior in the crisis, saying it had sought to find a solution through dialogue. In June, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates and Egypt cut ties with Qatar, accusing it of backing extremism and fostering ties with rival Iran. Qatar denies the claim and has been strongly backed by Turkey throughout the standoff. And finally, South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa paid tribute to his late spokesperson Ronnie Mamwepa, who died on Saturday at the age of 56. Ramaphosa says Mamwepa's death is a great loss to him personally, to the presidency and government at large. Mamwepa's last official appearance was with Ramaphosa when the Deputy President, in his capacity as SADC mediator, attended the inauguration of Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabane last month. Mamwepa was in hospital for several weeks before his death, suffering complications after a stroke. Acting spokesperson for the South African Deputy President Tyrone Seal remembers Ronnie Mamwepa's professionalism in his work. First of all, he was committed to absolute integrity. He would not tell you anything that wasn't the way he was telling you. So he was uh, committed to truth. He was committed to media freedom. He perfectly understood the role that media played in the country, but he was also uh, very passionate about the fact that organizations and institutions such as government um, had to harness their own communications platforms to reach as many people as possible and to remain in touch with people. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. The UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs has described the humanitarian situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo as an acute crisis. Stephen O'Brien made this statement at the Njili International Airport in Kinshasa as he concluded a three-day visit on Friday. Jean-Noël Bomweza reports from Kinshasa. Among these countries' personalities, the UN Undersecretary General in charge of humanitarian affairs has met with here are the Prime Minister Brino Chibala, the Vice Prime Minister in charge of Home Affairs, and the Minister of Humanitarian Affairs. Stephen O'Brien has spent three days in this country visiting different areas including both the North and South Kivu provinces in the East, the Tanganyika province in the Southeast, and both Chikapa and Kananga in the Kasai region in the South. He then realized the situation has become too serious with 3.8 million of internally displaced people in this country where 80,000 people are becoming displaced on daily basis. Stephen O'Brien. It is clear. The Democratic Republic of Congo is facing an acute crisis 
Our humanitarian needs have been substantial, requiring international humanitarian assistance at a very large scale over the last two decades, and I take this moment to pay tribute and admiration for the brilliant and indeed brave work of international humanitarians and national humanitarians over many years, saving countless lives and protecting millions of civilians. And you can only see that by getting out into the uh, other parts of the country uh, uh, beyond uh, Kinshasa. Uh, and that has now changed so that in the last 12 months we have seen a dramatic deepening of this very acute crisis here in DRC. In fact, the number of internally displaced persons here in DRC has jumped from 2.2 million to 3.8 million in just six months. And this now represents the highest IDP population of any African country. Also, the number of newly displaced persons across the country between September last year and April this year has meant that more than 8,000 people a day are becoming displaced and having to flee for their lives or to try to survive. Meanwhile, the visit has allowed the UN Under Secretary General in charge of humanitarian affairs to come out with other findings and realize that the humanitarian crisis underway here affects more parts of this country. All this happens while funding for the DRC continues to decline and up to now there is not enough funds to cover the internally displaced people's needs. The UN humanitarian boss Stephen O'Brien has appealed for more funds. The other very severe finding is that there are, of course, whole new parts of the country which have been affected. The five provinces, known collectively as the Grand Kazai, are now impacted by massive levels of displacement and human suffering as a result of the conflict and the violence. And we can see that there are about 1.4 million uh, people uh, in uh, Kasai alone who've been uh, displaced. And of course we saw similar um, displacement, uh, slightly lesser numbers in the Tanganyika uh, province. At the same time as all this, funding for life-saving needs in the Democratic Republic of the Congo continues to decline. The flash appeal which we put out uh, not that long ago for 64.5 million US dollars in order to make sure that we could launch a support operation fully funded for humanitarian assistance. The visit the UN Undersecretary General in charge of humanitarian affairs concluded by a press conference on Friday started on Wednesday. Stephen O'Brien arrived here in Kinshasa on Tuesday in the evening. Channel Africa Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. The African Union has called on all stakeholders in Kenya's general election to ensure the election is free, fair and credible for the sake of the country's stability after the polls. Former South African President Thabo Mbeki, who is heading an African Union elections observer mission to Kenya, said the East African economic powerhouse holds a vital role in the continent and a credible and peaceful election would set a precedence for the rest of Africa. He spoke to the media in Nairobi on Saturday after two days of marathon meetings with several key people in the electoral process. Sarah Kimani has more. Just over two weeks to the polls in Kenya. 
campaigns are in top gear. For a country that has previously witnessed electoral-related chaos, there is a cautious optimism. Everybody is communicating one message, uh, which is that uh, as Kenyans, uh, people want to have peaceful, free, fair, credible elections. A delicate balance for Kenyans hoping for a credible, free and fair election, but also that it will pass on peacefully. We are all of us mindful uh, of what happened in 2007-2008 and, uh, and very, very keen that there must never ever be a repetition of that. And uh, for the sake of Kenya, <coughs> but it's also for the sake of the continent because of the importance of the country, the Republic of Kenya in terms of the African context. This is, this is an important African country. And, and what, what Kenya does serves as an example in terms of the rest of the continent. With a spotlight on the Independent Elections and Boundaries Commission, the African Union team had two meetings with the Electoral Commission and another with the Chairman of the Commission. The AU team's message to the Commission was to communicate and consult with all stakeholders, but most importantly... And indeed, I'm saying also, therefore, that exactly part of what will, will, will result in elections being peaceful is the fact of their being free and fair and, and credible and all that. That is, the, all of these things are interconnected. And we, as, as is role players in Kenya, all of us must act to ensure that we get to this outcome. If people have any disputes arising out of the elections and then must resort to the courts and use the normal legal processes to address those rather than any other means. The mission raised concerns over the underrepresentation of women in this year's polls and cautioned that a lower number of elected women leaders is regressive for Kenya. There are 19.6 million registered voters. 53% of those registered are male, while 47% are female, compared to 49% of female registered voters in the 2013 general election. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Nam, kwenye line ya simu, hivi sasa, najiunga moja kwa moja. Farafina. Farafina. Terre du Soleil. Está na companhia do serviço em língua portuguesa do canal África, a voz de renascença africana que transmite a partir dos seus estudos centrais de Auckland Park, cidade de Johannesburg, África do Sul. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma says the manner in which the late African National Congress President Chief Albert Lutuli died remains questionable even today. He was speaking in Hrudville in the country's Gozul Natal province during the 50th commemoration since Chief 
Lutuli died. The South, Af- South Africa's first Nobel Peace Prize laureate died mysteriously in 1967 when authorities said he was hit by a train at Grootville, a claim disputed by his family. Meanwhile, Lutuli's family has reiterated their call for the opening of an inquest as to how Chief Lutuli died. Vusima Kosini reports. Scores of people from across Guadalupe gathered in Gladville to commemorate and celebrate the life of the late ANC president, Chief Albert Lutuli. President Zuma started at Lutuli's grave where he laid wreath on Chief Lutuli's grave. Chief Lutuli, who was also a traditional leader in Gladville, led the ANC from 1952 until his death in 1967. He was arrested several times and banned from attending and addressing political gatherings. Speaking to hundreds of people attending Lutuli's commemoration, President Zuma said an explanation as how Lutuli died is still questionable. On this day, 50 years ago, our country lost one of its most illustrious sons and Africa's first Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Chief Albert Lutuli under mysterious circumstances. The official report was that he was run over by a train. The report remains unconvincing to this day, given the brutality of the racist apartheid regime and its attitude to the leaders of the mass democratic movement. The death of Chief Albert Lutuli will continue to be shrouded in suspicion. President Zuma described Lutuli as one of the outstanding leaders the ANC ever had. He denounced the reports that Chief Lutuli was against the formation of Umkodwe Sizwe, the former ANC military wing. When it was discussed about this military wing, what is going to be its name? It was named by Chief Albert Lutuli. And he said, if you are a man and he realizes you are weak, The place you run to is your home. But if the man follows you and the person follows you, he asks the question, you take your spear. And he said, now that you are having a military wing, it should be the spear of the nation. He named MK to be Umkonto Wesizu. Because you might not know some of the elements, how much he was involved in the underground structure. There is no decision that was taken without him. Of course, a decision was taken that Nelson Mandela must lead the initiative. And it meant that he must therefore disappear, go underground, be the commander-in-chief. The Lutuli family does not believe that Chief Lutuli's death was as a result of being hit by a train. Chief Lutuli's daughter, Dr. Albertina Lutuli, says as the family, they want a probe on how their father died. We are encouraged now that in fact, you know, it's been pronounced on the matter of the death of my father openly in such a gathering by people like uh, the, the president himself, recognized that, and you heard him also using that mysterious, you heard me talk, mysterious uh, comrade uh, Wilson Kuhn and we all feel the same way you know that my father's death is not yet well you know explained but we know how he died 
but surely, really, uh, it needs to be taken to the level of the organization that he led, you know, to lead now, to pronounce and bring some closure on this matter. And I think it's not just us as the family who would like to see that happen, but in fact, it's South Africa. Meanwhile, Chief Lutulu's monument has been declared a national heritage site. And that report by Vusi Makosini. It's 8.20 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Leader of South Africa's main opposition party, the Democratic Alliance, Musi Maimani, has called on society to march to Parliament in Cape Town on the day of the debate of the motion of no confidence, Maimani is conducting a door-to-door campaign in the township of Maputing Katu in the Northern Cape province ahead of the local by-elections and the 2019 general elections. He says ANC MPs cannot be trusted to vote to have President Zuma removed because they are also tainted by corruption. Neo Budumela reports. The ANC has already proclaimed that they will defend Jacob Zuma. And if they want to do that, whether secret or not secret, it is now upon us as the people to take action into our own hands. Less than a month before the vote of no confidence in President Jacob Zuma, DA leader Musi Maimani says that it is clear that certain ANC members of parliament will protect Zuma in the upcoming parliamentary debate on the vote of no confidence in him. Maimani says this is because the entire cabinet of the ANC is party to corrupt activities in government. It's become quite clear that people like Balagambete, etc., will want to protect Jacob Zuma. But we want South Africans like Makosi Koza and all the opposition will stand together to vote to have Jacob Zuma removed. And we believe that ultimately as people will be marching, we've already called for a march. On the 8th of August, we want all South Africans to come to Cape Town. March on that day. They must march in all their communities. They must march in the Northern Cape. They must march everywhere. Because we want to see a change. Maimani gave the strongest indication yet that opposition parties would attempt to form a coalition government if the parties garnered enough votes in the 2019 elections. He also hinted that the DA may call for an early election. We must vote for a coalition-led government so that we can ensure that we live in a South Africa where corruption will not succeed, jobs can be created for our people, and local government delivers services for our people. At the earliest elections possible, we want to vote to remove the whole ANC because it's the ANC who are protecting Jacob Zuma, and by extension, they protect the Guptas, they protect corruption, and 2019 cannot come soon. I'm hoping we can have elections sooner so we can remove the whole lot of them. The parliamentary debate on the vote of no confidence will be held on August the I'm Neo Budumela in Katu in the Northern Cape. South Africa's ruling ANC-NEC member Lindiwe Sisulu has officially launched her presidential campaign for party president. Sisulu unveiled her campaign during a Nelson Mandela memorial lecture in Cliptown in Soweto. Mbali Sibanyoni reports. Arriving to a packed hall at the Walter Sisulu Square in Cliptown, named after her father, ANC NEC member Lindiwe Sisulu officially presented herself to party branches ahead of the race for ANC president. Addressing supporters in Soweto, who were mainly the elderly, Sisulu told those in attendance that she will continue to fight for an ANC previous leaders such as Sisulu, Nelson Mandela and Oliver Tambo embodied. In the life of each one of us, They are crucial moments. They arrive without invitation, 
often without warning. And nothing more is, is more important than being alert and prepared to receive them with one's heart and take them on within one's abilities. In my life, this is one of those moments that I've chosen today to come here to honor Madiba, to give this lecture and give myself to him and the cause that he fought for anew. Sisulu continued to urge party branches, asking them to stand with her and support her presidential campaign. I'm ready to fight so that we can reclaim these values that once were ours. I'd like to urge you to stand with me to regain the honor of being a revolutionary. I'd like you to stand with me so that we can earn something more valuable than money. That is integrity, honor, courage, heart, and respect. I'd like you to stand with me because we have to save the ANC. With the slogan, it's a must, the presidential hopeful highlighted what urgently needs to be addressed in South Africa. I, Lindy Wesisulu, have committed myself to these principles. I have committed myself to ensure that all of these things that I have counted as a must are a must, first of all, to me. We must further ensure that we cry out loud and say we must stop the killings in Guazulu Natal. It is alien to the culture of the ANC. It is not the culture of our movement. We must stop violence against women and children. It is alien to our culture. It must stop. We must stop corruption. It is alien to our movement and it is harming us. We must unshackle ourselves from the stronghold of undemocratic processes. The ANC is not for sale. So for heaven's sake, don't let anybody buy your vote. And don't you buy anybody's vote. Campaigns for the position of ANC president is only expected to begin in September. So far, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, former AU Commission Chairperson Nkosazana Zamini Zuma, ANC National Chairperson Balegambete, former ANC Treasurer General Matthews Posa, and long-serving NEC member Jeff Khatebe are also vying for the top job. A new president will be elected in December at the elective conference. Ambali Sibanyoni in Cliptown, Soweto. Zimbabweans have welcomed the government's decision to impose a mandatory 60-year jail sentence for rapists. This is expected to address the growing problem of assault, of sexual assault in the country, especially against minors and disabled. Although a motion was moved in Parliament in 2014, government only responded a few days ago through a cabinet decision. Simon Mochema reports from Harare. The honeymoon is over for rapists in Zimbabwe. Government announced a few days ago when a decision was made to impose a mandatory 60-year jail term for raping a child and a disabled. According to the government, a decision was reached following an outcry over how criminal courts treated rapists, imposing lenient sentences, and in a way trivializing the heinous offense 
at a time when the maximum penalty was life imprisonment. Despite the country having a strong sexual offenses law, magistrates were not given enough powers to impose such stiff penalties. Due to the low jail sentences for raping children, the country experienced an increase in the matters up to 325 per month and recorded the highest child marriages rate of 33%. When a Harare-based lawyer and opposition legislator Jessima Jome moved the motion in 2014, she never expected government would respond three years later owing to the absence of a political will. Government is a very strange creature. It needs to do a, tr- a lot of things and a lot of very critical urgent things such as these ones. Sometimes it doesn't want to do them. It doesn't make a difference to it whether it does it or not. And sometimes it, it wants to do them. But in all those three instances, it just doesn't do them. <laughs> the government has had some political will to do this for a long time, but it just hasn't been doing it. It doesn't matter. If you don't do it, it doesn't help. So. My hope was to push. What I was really um, upset about, that really said to me, look, go and move this motion, was I heard the Minister of Women Affairs, um, she had uh, been interviewed. I read a story about how she was lamenting her and crying her heart out about the need for, that somebody must review sentences and make them stiffer for rape and so on. So I thought, why is the minister, who is the minister hoping will do that? That's what the ministers did. Jessima Jome said government should do more. I feel and encouraged. I feel, I wish I could find a word, but I'm, I'm very happy that um, the government is finally doing what she should have been doing a long time ago. That is to keep a watch on trends for sentencing, uh, particularly gender-based violence and rape in particular to see whether they are working out whether justice is being done, because it isn't being done at all. I'm very unhappy about the way the law is not treating rape especially seriously and other forms of gender-based violence. And my concern has been about um, the whole chain of the criminal justice system around sexual uh, violence and gender-based violence and rape. The law has had a very poor response, and it's most, most visible in the sentencing, because that's what you say. Mishig Hogwe, president of the Law Society of Zimbabwe, had this to say. You see, the issue of rape has always been a topical issue, and especially rape perpetrated against minors. It's uh, a serious case, and uh, obviously one of the ways of trying to deter people from committing the offence would be to have very stiff penalties. Whether it's 60 years or some other stiff penalties, it's not so important to me. What is important is the penalty has to be harsh enough to express society's revulsion of such offenses. On one hand, Barbara Nyangairi, director of Deaf Zimbabwe Trust, welcomed government's move. The mandatory jail sentence for rape and especially for girls with disabilities is a welcome move particularly because girls with disabilities face double vulnerability in the sense that they are disabled and then somebody takes advantage of their vulnerability. Many sexual offenders, particularly for girls who are deaf and those with physical disabilities, have been taking advantage of the fact that the children cannot report them. In some cases, they've not been able to describe the offense to somebody. 
because of the lack of sign language provision in our country. Earare based mother Tsepisi Mpofu said the decision is welcome although government should not differentiate categories of rape. Rape is rape. You rape the disabled person, you rape an adult, is the same. There's no difference. I think life in jail is the best. He will be hounded the whole of the life. In Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. It's 8.32 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Christian militiamen in the Central African Republic attack United Nations peacekeepers who are protecting a convoy of water trucks. Hundreds of Islamic State corps awaiting repatriation from Libya months after Libyan forces defeated the Islamic State in the coastal city of Sirt. And Amnesty International says in a new report that thousands of South Sudanese women and girls and some men who have been raped in ethnically charged sexual attacks in the ongoing conflict are battling mental distress and stigma with nowhere to turn for help. Those are the stories making headlines. Preventing people from contracting tuberculosis or TB remains the biggest challenge in fighting this 200-year-old disease that kills at least 2 million each year. For the first time, TB will top the agenda at a high-level meeting of all heads of state at the UN General Assembly in September next year. This will hopefully lead to a solution on how to eradicate the curable disease. Tabilem Bele reports. Chairperson of the Global Stop TB Partnership and Health Minister Aaron Motswaledi says TB is one of the major medical challenges globally. In the past 200 years, TB has killed more people than HIV AIDS itself, than influenza, than cholera, than malaria, than bubonic plaque, all of them added together. But still, we are still having a problem. South Africa has one of the highest rates of TB in the world. It's exacerbated by the HIV-AIDS pandemic, which is rife in the country and its neighbors. As Professor Shabir Madi, the director at the National Institute for Communicable Diseases, explains. In South Africa, as an example, close to 80% of the population will likely have been infected with TB at some stage in their life, simply because TB is so ubiquitous. It circulates so freely in the environment that everyone becomes infected. What's happening is that People remain infected and they become, uh, they develop disease at a much later stage. So unless we can stop people from becoming infected in the first place, right, we're never going to get on top of the problem and we're never going to eradicate TB. He says the country needs to identify infected people very early, put them on treatment immediately and ensure they complete the course if it is to contain the disease. And that's our problem. Firstly, we don't have sufficient number of cases that are detected early in the course of the illness. If they're not detected early, it means they're going to infect more people around them. Number two, up to 25% to 30% of the people that are tested and that have TB, they don't go back to the clinic to get the results and they're not started on TB treatment. And then number three, the problem we face again is that of the people that actually started on TB treatment, not all of them are actually completing six months or nine months of treatment. Those that do not complete the treatment will either die or develop multi-drug resistant TB, which is harder and more expensive to treat. 
Mutualeli says they've demanded that the world leaders prioritize TB globally. A high-level meeting is going to be convened where all heads of states around the world are going to debate this issue of TB and try to come up with an everlasting solution. At long last, TB is the only major disease in the world which has not been debated at the United Nations. We need to work hard because we are one of the what is called high-prevalence countries where the sketch of TB is the highest. South Africa is unfortunately mentioned amongst one of those. Madi says a number of studies are currently being conducted to find new vaccines to prevent TB in children and adults. He says two vaccines are currently being evaluated in Soweto and Cape Town and the results should be available late next year. I'm Tabile Mbele in Johannesburg. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonye in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbero Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. While institutions exist in South Africa to implement the Sustainable Development Goals, they are not yet working in a coherent manner to ensure success by the 2030 deadline. That's the view of the country's Auditor General who was speaking exclusively to SABC News on the sidelines of a workshop of Supreme Audit Institutions at the UN in New York. The gathering forms part of a collaboration between the International Organization of Supreme Audit Institutions or in Tosai and the UN's Department of Economic and Social Affairs to develop a framework through which Auditors General can play a central role in the evaluation of financial management of the SDGs from conception through to completion. Sean Bryce Peace reports. What is at the heart of this in order for the sustainable development goals to succeed is to have strong institutions in the country. Auditor General Kimi Makwetu could be the most important individual when it comes to the SDG success in South Africa, part of critical discussions in New York, to create a system through which to assess and monitor the implementation of the 17 goals and their 169 targets. The sustainable development goals are about the building of schools, the building of roads, the building of hospitals the provision of uh, water, the reduction of poverty. So what we do, because money gets allocated to our governments and our governments commit that money to doing all these things, 
we as auditors in the past have only been involved in producing reports on financial management. We have not been involved in producing reports on whether the school that was promised has been built, whether the hospital that was meant to be in place has been put in place, whether the road network that's supposed to lead to the school is in place. And that's what auditors are gearing themselves up for, to say they may not know in terms of the skills that are required to do that, but if they are involved, they will bring on board other people who will assist them to make sure that the school that has been built is of the level and measures to the money that has been made available. Makwetu is chair of the Capacity Building Committee of Intosai, an umbrella organization to promote development and improve government auditing worldwide. We promote transparency, how this money is being used, so that if somebody at the end says we could not put the school in place, at least there can be a report that says indeed the school was not put in place and here are the reasons why that school was not put in place. Maybe the money was used on something else or money was stolen if that is what has happened. But that's what auditors will be there to do, to make sure that if you say you are going to promote jobs in your economy, mm-hmm. we need to have a measurement that says where are the targets, mm-hmm. where are the indicators that show that jobs have been created so that we can test them. And we can apply our methodology as auditors to determine whether what you are writing in your report is indeed what you have done. With governance highlighted as one of the major weaknesses in the failure to achieve the Millennium Development Goals, with estimates that the SDGs could cost some $4.5 trillion or almost 60 trillion rand per year in state spending alone. I think it's a fair expectation that this target in the next 15 years can be, a lot of progress can be made. Certainly they cannot all be achieved in the next 15 years, there's no doubt about that. But I think it's good to have a stick in the ground and say that we want to measure how far we've come 15 years from now. And certainly if there are mechanisms that are put in place by both the private, the public sector and civil society organizations. And of course in the journey towards this there's also a, a, a very important responsibility to fight corruption among others. Because once funds are diverted from where they were intended, you then obviously fail from day one. And while politicians agreed to the goals, it will be accountants like him who could determine their success or failure. In 2030, when all these governments come together at the United Nations to report on the progress, we can be able to say we were there as auditors to measure, among others, whether the school that has been built is the school that is worth the money that was spent on it. In other words, money well spent. And if not, why not? I'm Sherwin Bryce-Pees in New York. Details of the funeral of Ronnie Mamwepa are expected to be made public today. Mamwepa passed away on Saturday at the Unitas Hospital in Centurion, south of Pretoria. Mamwepa was the spokesperson of Deputy President Sil Ramaphosa and he died of complications after he suffered a stroke five weeks ago. Lila Machnes reports. The 56-year-old Ronnie Mamwepa was one of the youngest prisoners at Robben Island when he was incarcerated there for five years. He was convicted for terrorism in 1980 at the age of 18. He communicated the views and comments of various government ministers and the ANC, with the Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa being his last assignment. Ramaphosa says Mamwepe was a passionate communicator who loved his job and was well-loved. Ronnie was loved by everyone and he was good at his work. He was very professional 
and he was a person who had a great vision about how government communications should work. So for us, this is a great loss, and for me personally, as he was my uh, spokesperson, uh, this is a great, great loss. It is going to be difficult to fill Ronnie's shoes. Ramaphosa visited the family at their house in Centurion to pay his respects to Mamwepe's wife Audrey, his children and family. He said Mamwepa was one of a kind. He was very engaging and very enthralling as well, but also extremely knowledgeable about everything. And uh, Ronnie was, uh, was very direct as well. And the one thing that I loved about Ronnie is that he was honest, he was a person of integrity, and if you ever wanted a person in communications of integrity, that was Ronnie. He was not a spin person, and I think he always told it as it was, uh, with a nuance if he needed to uh, put a nuance to it. South Africans, journalists, politicians and celebrities took to social media to express their grief at the death of Mamwepa. Mamwepa's brother, Johnny Masupie, says Mamwepa had a wicked sense of humor that will be sorely missed. Masupie says his brother was a pillar of strength in the family. He was a good man. He was humble. He, he'll always be there whenever his services were needed. Whenever there was help that was needed, he will do that. Uh, even to people that were closer to our family, he would help wherever he could. The family will hold a series of prayer meetings throughout the week at the house. Gruven Chabaleng, designated spokesperson for the family. It will have a prayer session from 6 to 7 and on a daily basis. That we are still uh, doing all the logistics, uh, that working with the presidency and in different departments and in government to, to ensure that the, those particular logistics are addressed. The funeral arrangements will most likely be announced today. The Mamwepa family expressed their gratitude for the outpouring of support and condolences, as well as messages of comfort they received from across the country. I am Lila Magnus in Pretoria. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our economics update up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has pleaded with his country's skilled workers living in the diaspora to return home so that they could help in reviving the country's floundering economy. This comes at a time when an estimated 4 million Zimbabweans are living outside the country after fleeing economic problems and alleged political persecution at the hands of the 93-year-old leader's administration. 
Meanwhile, the Zimbabwean government has overran its 2016 national budget by close to 1 billion US dollars. Presenting the inaugural 2016 annual budget review in Parliament, Finance Minister Patrick Chinamasa said the government's 2016 expenditure amounted to 4.9 billion dollars against a budget of 4 billion dollars, resulting in a budget overrun of 902 million dollars. Chinamasa said that financing of the 2016 budget deficit was primarily through domestic borrowing against the background of absence of external financing. The world economy is making steady progress as it recovers from the financial crisis which happened under a year ago. The International Monetary Fund has raised its predicted growth for many Eurozone countries but lowered it for the US. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. The forecast is for global growth this year of 3.5% and 3.8% in 2018. Although that would represent stronger performance than last year, the IMF says it's still below the average from before the financial crisis. The forecasts have been raised for many Eurozone countries, but lowered for the US, as the IMF now appears less convinced there will be any stimulus from tax reform. There's a warning about what the IMF calls inward-looking policies, such as barriers to trade. The result, it says, could be disrupted global supply chains, lower productivity and less affordable traded goods, which would harm low-income households disproportionately. AB InBev is looking to spend 250 million US dollars on a greenfields expansion project in Nigeria, as well as spending 30 million dollars on expanding its operations in Zambia and Ghana for a total investment of 310 million dollars. The German brewer says is planning to set up a new brewery in Nigeria and is working with the relevant authorities to ensure that all approvals were in place. Last week, South African breweries announced that it was investing millions of dollars in brewery expansions at two of its Gauteng province branches and would introduce two new packaging lines for retainable glass bottles. And oil prices have gained after a steep fall for the session before, buoyed by expectations that a joint OPEC and an OPEC meeting later in the day may address rising output in Nigeria and Libya. The two OPEC members are so far exempt from a push to cut production. Ministers from the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries and other non-OPEC producers gather in the Russian city of St. Petersburg to discuss the pact to curb output by 1.8 million barrels per day through the end of March 2018. In your financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 12.90 to the South African rand, 9.99 to the Botswana Bula, and at 8.75 to the Zambian Kwacha. It's at 0.76 to the British pound and 0.85 to the euro. In commodities, gold is at $1,254 and platinum at $929 an ounce. The price of plain crude oil is at $49.13 a barrel. And that's how it's looking at this hour. Thank you, Amanda. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
First up in our update this hour, we begin with athletics. Wales Athletics Governing Body, the IAAF President Lord Sebastian Coe, says he cannot guarantee next month's World Athletics Championships will be drug-free. Russia's Athletics Federation is banned from the event in London, having been suspended by the Sports Global Governing Body in 2015 amid allegations of state-sponsored doping. Coe, however, added the system for detecting cheats is a lot safer. Russia was barred from international athletics after last year's McLaren report claimed more than 1,000 athletes benefiting from a state-sponsored doping program between 2011 and 2015. Ko says in April he was disappointed by the lack of progress made by Russia in anti-doping reforms. On to football news, South African national under-17 football team, Ama Jimbos, have suffered their first loss in the Kosafa Under-17 tournament in Port Louis in Mauritius, narrowly going down 3-2 to Group B leader Zambia. The game looked like heading for another big scoreline as the Zambians led 3-0 at halftime. Amajimbo's head coach, Muli Finseki, has more on the challenges in the first half. Congratulations to Zambia to have won their match. And I think um, congratulations also to South African players the way they conducted themselves in the second half and uh, only lacked confidence and belief, self-belief in the first half. Uh, that is why we ended up giving away those three goals. Uh, but I think um, that is always experience when you are working with junior players because uh, at this age they are under 15 in our case and uh, their mental uh, strength is very low. Concentration lapses um, happens to be uh, the order of the day. So we are fully aware of it. And I think um, from us helping them from the bench, that's exactly what we should be doing with uh, junior players because we need to remind them of their individual roles and functions within the game. South African national under-17 football team Amachita still have a chance to qualify for the semi-finals. They are up against Madagascar in the last group match on Tuesday and will fancy their chances of progressing. That's according to Nzegi. It could have been a game of two halves when they scored three goals in the first half and then we were to score three goals in the second half. So um, what, we, what we saw in the second half is that um, we were never under pressure or the goalkeeper was never under pressure with uh, the approach from Zambia. So that really worked for us because uh, we were fully aware that uh, they, were, uh, they had a lot of confidence on, on, in possession. And then we took advantage of that, and I think our transition moments really worked for us. So um, we're looking forward to the last match of the group. Hopefully we'll do well in that uh, match and qualify for the semifinals. In hockey news, 20 of the best hockey-playing nations in the world have spent an amazing couple of weeks in South Africa. And South African Hockey Association Saha CEO Marisa Langeni says they can be proud as a country for the way they have hosted this year's FIH World Hockey League semifinals as the curtain was coming down at Vets Hockey Astro in Johannesburg. South Africa has certainly put the bar very high in terms of hosting, in terms of what we've been able to achieve with this specific event, having top 20 top nations all coming to Johannesburg and having faith in this local organizing committee that we could pull off a fantastic event has been testament to all the work that's happened in the background. So yes, lots of challenges in terms of getting everybody into hotels, transport, etc. But I think that um, you know, with the volunteers that we have on the ground, we've been able to pull off a fantastic event thus far. And finally, with golf news, 
Jordan Spieth won the British Open at the Royal Big Dale on Sunday by three shots from fellow American Matt Kuchar after a dramatic final round. Spieth, 23, shot a 69 to finish on 12 under par, with Kuchar second at 9 under. He's the first man to post four rounds in the 60s in an Open at Bagdale. It is Spieth's third major title after he won the Masters and US Open in 2015. Spieth had been top of the leaderboard after each of the first three rounds and his victory saw him emulate the great Jack Nicklaus in getting his hands on a third different major before turning 24. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa concerns over humanitarian situation in the DRC. South Africa's former president heads AU election observer mission to Kenya. And Zimbabwe introduces a 60-year jail term for rapists. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or send a WhatsApp message on 277-6300-3327. Or you can also send an SMS on 277-969-57. 930. I'll taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa is Bayete with the track title Sponky Ponky. I'm not